Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. With 10 categories, 10 winners, and one big night of celebrating the best of business excellence, entries are now open for the British Chamber's 22nd Annual Business Awards. As Singapore's longest running awards by an international chamber, categories range from Employer of the Year, Diversity and Inclusion Champion of the Year, Sustainability Champion of the Year, through to UK Exporter of the Year and more. For all the details and how to submit your entries, visit www.britcham.org.sg. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Barclays, a member company and the official diversity and inclusion partner of the British Chamber of Commerce, Singapore. Barclays is a British universal bank. The bank is diversified by business, by different types of customers and clients, and by geography. Its businesses include customer banking and payments, operations around the world, as well as top-tier, full-service, global, corporate and investment bank, all of which are supported by its service company, which provides technology, operations and functional services across the group. Barclays has been in Asia-Pacific for over 50 years and primarily supports corporations and financial institutions across the Asian region, catering to their cross-border corporate and investment banking needs and connecting them to the capital markets of Europe and the Americas. In Asia-Pacific, Barclays International has a presence in Hong Kong, China, Japan, Singapore, India and Australia. Barclays is a strong supporter of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. As an organisation, the bank is focused on increasing the diversity of its employees and is committed to strengthening its supportive and inclusive culture. And welcome to the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's International Women's Day 2021, the virtual conference, and the final webinar of the series, um, which is in conversation with Jenny Campbell, who's the founder of Your Cash and a former panellist on the BBC's Dragon's Den. My name is David Kelly, and I'm the Executive Director of the British Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore. For the second year running, the Chamber is holding its annual International Women's Day celebration virtually. And whilst COVID has changed many things, important discussions around gender and equality continue. And we have been delighted to see so many of you to join us this year as we've addressed important topics such as women in STEM, challenging bias and diversity in startups. I'd like to say a huge thank you to the incredible speakers who have given us so much of their time during the conference and over the last seven or eight days to share their personal experiences and valuable insights in discussions addressing leadership bias, education, growth and more. Closing this year's IWD conference series today, British High Commissioner Her Excellency Cara Owen is sitting down in conversation with Jenny Campbell. We're honoured to be joined by both speakers today and I'm very much looking forward to hearing Jenny's insights on being a leader in business. This fantastic conference would not be possible without the support of our Women in Business Business Committee who work extremely hard to keep these important topics at the forefront of our minds. Another huge thank you to Barclays Bank, our diversity and inclusion partners who support all of our activity that we deliver in this space. I would now like to hand you over to Luciano Vicchino, Head of Human Resources Asia Pacific at Barclays Bank to say a few words. And Luciano is also the chair of our Women in Business Committee as well. Luciano, a very warm welcome and over to you. Thanks a lot, David. Hi everyone, I'm Luciana Vicchino, I'm the head of Barclays Human Resources for Asia Pacific. I'm based in Singapore. 
I am really happy to welcome you to the BRICHEM Singapore International Women's Day uh, 2021 virtual conference in conversation with Jenny Campbell uh, that is conducted in partnership with Barclays. Barclays is very proud to be the official diversity and inclusion partner for BRICHEM in Singapore. And in fact, we have been working with BRICHEM for a number of years, including the chairmanship of the Chambers Women in Business and Diversity and Inclusion Committees. I myself uh, chaired the Women in Business Committee, and that has been an extraordinary experience to connect with colleagues from different industries with the main objective to drive the gender agenda and to support the success of women from different backgrounds. Barclays is a strong supporter of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. As an organization, we remain focused on increasing the diversity of our employees and are committed to strengthening our supportive and inclusive culture. In order to truly create an inclusive culture, we need to ensure that we collectively change biases and the stereotypes. This year's theme for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. And for Barclays, this means opening the dialogue around stereotypes and gender biases and how we can all challenge this. We also want to actively recognize and celebrate the achievements and success of all women from all backgrounds. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Cara and Jenny, and I hope you will enjoy what I'm sure is going to be a stimulating and interesting discussion. Please uh, join me in welcoming our speakers today. And with that, back to you, David, so we can start it. Thank you so much indeed, Luciana, and to Barclays Bank for all of your engagement, both as a business, but also for your time personally as well. It's hugely appreciated. I'd also like to make uh, another thank you to Julius Baer, who are supporting partners of International Women's Day Conference that we bring you for their kind support as well. So for your host for the session, I am delighted to now introduce your moderator for today, Her Excellency Cara Owen, the British High Commissioner to Singapore. Cara, a very warm welcome. Lovely to see you again. And thank you so much for your time today. Over to you. Thank you very much, uh, David. And thank you, Luciana, um, uh, and to Britcham and Barclays for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to be involved in a fantastic interview during uh, this International Women's Day uh, week. Uh, so I am absolutely delighted that today uh, my privilege and pleasure is going to be to uh, first interview and then moderate questions to Jenny Campbell, uh, the founder of Your Cash ATM and cash machine specialist, managing an extensive estate of thousands of ATMs. Jenny, after leaving school at age 16, Jenny began her working life counting cash in a bank branch. She climbed through the ranks to become one of the early, really senior female bankers uh, in the UK. After 30 years uh, in the banking trade, she left the corporate world in 2006 in pursuit of a new challenge. And I'm dying to hear her talk about what this felt like at the time. She left to turn around a failing cash machine business owned by RBS. She launched a major um, operational restructure of Hanko ATM systems, turning it from a business that was making a huge loss uh, in competitive markets to a thriving, profitable entity operating across Europe. She later went on to buy out the business from RBS and become a ma majority shareholder, later relaunching it as Your Cash Europe Limited. Ten years on from taking the business under her wing, Jenny sold Your Cash in October 2016 to a company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Previously awarded Businesswoman of the Year, Jenny stays true to her favourite business motto, live by corporate standards, but breathe like an entrepreneur. Welcome, Jenny, to the Britcham International Women's Day Virtual Conference. Really delighted to have you. Good afternoon, Singapore. I'm delighted to be with you. So, Jenny, um, I've just described in Potted History uh, a journey that you uh, went through where you started at a kind of junior level on the ground floor, if you like, um, and uh, had a career in a kind of big organisations in banking. And then you 
stop that to start on this amazing journey of turning mm. around a failing uh, company and then um, to go on to take the really massive decision to go on and uh, buy it yourself and take it through um, uh, to real success. I'd love to kick off uh, hearing mm. a bit more about your motivation uh, for doing that. It's a really big step. You're changing cultures. Um, you're taking a big punt on something that you have seen. Could you talk to us a little bit about what were the sparks that you saw within Hanko that made mm -hmm. you think this is what you wanted to do to step out of that big organization and into a completely new um, uh, type of working? Um, uh, what gave you the confidence to do that? What were the sparks that you saw? Very happy to. So I think my reflect it's always about reflections, isn't it, of how did that happen? And I think at the time, did it feel like an enormous step? Not in 2006, it didn't. I, I feel if I look back on my career, I've made incremental steps that have slowly got, it's like taking bigger and bigger strides, probably as your confidence grows and you see more opportunities that you feel capable of. So you know, the 2006 moment was off the back of having, um, you know, worked in NatWest and then Royal Bank for nearly 30 years across a whole range of positions from customer facing to back office operational roles to strategic roles. Um, uh, and then working on the, um, uh, the merger of the RBS and NatWest banks from 1999 to 2005. So, you know, and I'm, I'm into my early 40s by then. And, um, Bear in mind, I started at grassroots, as you said, serving customers on the front line. And even before that, I started work at 13 in a, in a confectionery shop and serving customers and cashing up at the end of the day and so on. And really, my heart was always in customer facing jobs as well. So I'd come through all of these roles in, in 28, 30 years and through some serious head office roles as well. And by 2006, I was really wanting to get back to what I call the real end of the business and looking for my next role post a big head office transformational role. Um, and there was always a lot of opportunities in the banks and in corporates. By, uh, the roles were advertised internally. You saw all these roles advertised. And I, and I saw the role advertised at Hanko in 2006 for operations director. And um, it just struck a chord with me that it was getting out of head office, going into a small subsidiary business that RBS had bought two years prior and having the opportunity to touch a business end to end from, you know, um, the products to sales, to operations, to finance, 150 people, all self-contained. And maybe it felt a bit like my, my sweetie shop back when I was 13, but, but, <laughs> but bigger. So, uh, um, and, and other things happened. There was the 2005 bombings in London as well, the 7-7 bombings, and that shook me. And I thought, I'm not sure I really want to be here anymore. So I was looking for a, a change. And this opportunity came up at Hanko. I applied for it. I got the role. It, uh, it meant driving 70 miles from home each day, each way. Um, but I've been commuting to London on the train from, uh, you know, some distance for a while. And I thought nicer to travel in my own car and listen to the radio than do that commute for a while. So it's all fitted. But I only ever saw it as a two year job and then back to the ivory tower, probably. So, you know, again, it's all these incremental steps. Um, I found a business there that was in a complete mess. But I kind of like that because I sort of want to roll my sleeves up and go, right, where shall we start? And I spent two years um, uh, dividing the whole uh, business into um, uh, projects. Uh, and I called them, you know, repair, reinvent, uh, rejuvenate, you know, recharge type thing. It was all about getting back on our feet because um, it wasn't just about the amount of money we were losing. You know, every day felt a bit like a war zone in there in terms of phones, phones ringing off the hook and customers not getting served and just things going wrong every day. But I realised that all the skills I'd learned in the bank, I could bring into this business, particularly around risk management, incident management, control, having processes and procedures for everything, none of which existed because it, the business had grown up in a very, very entrepreneurial spirit. And that's where my phrase came from, that we needed to corporatize this business which had grown from one ATM and one founder to 6,000 ATMs and 150 people over two countries at that stage. But it, was had, it had not an ounce of, of policies, procedures and corporateness through it at all. And it needed that to be able to operate. Um, and so that's where I started from that two year programme. 
Um, so that wasn't, it wasn't, it, I suppose it was a step in coming out of head office and going to something like that, but it was very familiar to me, familiar territory. And I certainly felt as I walked in on day one in 2006, it reminded me of a role that I did at, um, um, in the 90s as a relationship manager, as a banking relationship manager, when I was looking after all sorts of customers from shopkeepers to farmers to, uh, uh, to builders, all sorts. So, and I used to walk into these businesses as the banker to do their review and, and see how we could help them and what facilities they needed, etc. And yet the day I walked into Hanko, I felt, oh, this is really strange. Now the banker's going in to actually work there and sit in the big chair. But so it was role reversal. But, I, you know, I, I wasn't uncomfortable with it. Did two years very hard, very hard work to turn the business around. But the, the biggest step really was 2008. Um, Caused by the global financial crisis, I hadn't thought about trying to buy this business. It wasn't for sale, but 2008 came and RBS wanted to sell the business because it was no longer core. Um, and I did spend a year trying to sell the business, but then, uh, you know, I could just see that I'd been proud to call myself a banker all my life. And by 2008, I wasn't proud to call myself a banker, let alone an RBS banker at that time. Um, and I saw all the hard work we'd done and the opportunity to carry that on without selling it to a competitor and it all being, you know, just folded into another business. Um, you talk really powerfully about the people. So um, there's a quote on your website at that moment that you saw that the business had real potential and you, you weren't ready to give up either on the business or on the people in it who had come on this journey with you yeah. as, as this yeah. transformation. Um, yeah. When you were about to take this step, um, what were the people around you saying, either inside the company or um, at the back, it, it, kind of uh, deeper into the bank, or you know your uh, kind of friends and support system outside? Yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of people's stories. I mean, the people piece was really important for me. You know, as I say, when I joined the business in 2006, one of the biggest challenges besides the procedural side was the people. The quality of the people in that business was, was poor compared to my banking standards. You know, 20% uh, of them didn't even want to come to work each day. And I'm not used to, used to that. So over that two years, I transitioned to a team um, that really wanted to be there as well. So I, you know, I felt that they were my team. Um, and when I looked out at them on the, on the, at the time, I was thinking about whether to sell this business or buy this business. I, I thought these people deserve to have a future and they will just all get made redundant if we sell it as well. So that was very much at my heart as well. I believed in them and what we built around me. Well, <laughs> um, uh, when, when I decided that we wanted to buy the business um, uh, in a, a, a perfect storm of it was for sale, but we couldn't get money, couldn't borrow money anywhere. And my bank were not prepared to finance the management team to buy it, it had to be arm's length. So that meant um, looking out for external money and it also meant being able to put some of my own money on the table. And that was very difficult times in 2008 because all our savings had been ploughed into um, the RBS shares and RBS profit sharing and so on. And whereas they had been worth, you know, a reasonable amount of money, they weren't worth very much at that time. So you were pr pretty cash strapped. So the there was a conversation with my husband that said, I want to leave my 30 year career and my 30 year pension fund and my guaranteed salary on the 18th of every month. I want to take £100,000 off the mortgage um, and, and head into an uncertain world. So that was quite interesting. Uh, but he was very supportive. Um, I, I was a conversation with my father, who uh, was a banker for 40 years, and he sort of gulped and said, what about the pension? And I said, don't worry, father, I've got 30 years banked and this is the right. I know it's the right thing to do. But he was worried. Um, and then other, you know, there's other, I, I'm a big um, one of my big advocates is you have to put people around you to support you on these journeys. You can't be an island. So yeah. I always say, get yourself a good set of advisors, a good accountant, a good lawyer, a good head of HR. You're going to need all, all of this around you in order to one achieve this um, uh, this buyout, and two then to be successful on the journey on the other side. So yeah, I had a. I wouldn't say I had anybody saying don't do this. I had a few gaps, gaps, some concerns. Um, that I was really um, 
uh, removing the security blanket and uh, mm. cutting the umb umbilical cord to the mothership, as I called it. So, uh, yeah. um, but no, really but... some good support to you as well. I'm intrigued yeah. by what you said about turning the team around mm. um, and talking about what you found when you arrived and what you looked at a couple of years mm -hmm. later. Kind of what proportion of that team do you think you just managed to change, engage, get behind a new vision, upskill? compared to um, people that actually changed during the <laughs> transformation? So, the, so I have another phrase, if you can't change the people, change the people. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I came from, from a banking background. We were always um, uh, taught to coach people, coach people up, put action plans in place, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in an entrepreneurial business, that's quite different. You haven't got a huge um, infrastructure around you to support you with that. And you need to deliver every day. Um, and uh, I remember speaking to one of my competitor colleagues who I had a very good relationship with one day. And I said, uh, Benoit, how do you deal with underperforming people in your business? And he just said to me, what do you mean, Jenny? He said, I just invite them into my office and say, this is not really working, is it? And, and I said to him, and this was before we bought the business, but Benoit, I don't have those choices. I have to sit down with the individual. I have to spend an hour going through, you know, an action plan. And then we revisit again in three months time. And then in another three months time, if they're still not performing, we transfer them to another part of the business. You know, that's what you did. Um, but I learned very quickly on the other side that you actually do dismiss people in the right way. We always let people go who weren't making it and didn't crucially, as we said, didn't have the right DNA for our business. And that was about attitude more than skill, because we will always teach and coach skill. But we always had another motto, which was recruit for attitude and train for skill. And they had to have the right attitude to be in our business. And then we were all rocking and rolling and singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, thank you. Can I take you to another bit of your amazing career, which is the time um, some of the audience may recognise you from your time on Dragon's Den, which is a programme that many of us know where entrepreneurs come along to pitch their ideas to a panel and one of the entrepreneurs invests their own money uh, and also um, mentoring and time and effort to take uh, these companies on. Um, when the Women in Business uh, Committee uh, of Britcham were talking about this event, some of the, an observation that they made was the fact that you approached that in a slightly different way to many of the other panel members. So can you, can you set out for us um, how you sort of manage your intervention in that process to get the best out of people for you as a potential mm. investor and whether you're, the extent to which you think your different approach aided you or gave you an advantage in terms of uh, finding the best companies uh, to invest in? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that um, that was observed by the by, by your side, because there are, there are, there's another side of things. If, if you read and believe Twitter, where, you know, you get you get the vitriolic, uh, you know, she's dreadful type thing, which is really quite hurtful when you're on the end yeah. of that. Um, I just took the decision, Cara, as I was going into the den, that um, the only way I could do this was by being me be the authentic me. I didn't want to pretend to be someone else and I didn't want to um, put, put on an act um, or be forced to put on an act for the show. You know, as I was saying earlier to David, um, I decided to go on the show because I'd always watched it since 2004. Um, I saw it as an educational programme first and mm -hmm. foremost. Perhaps once I'd been on the show for two seasons on the inside, I realised it actually, first and foremost, it is a show and they are looking to make it viewable um, whilst re retaining its authenticity. But I just thought the only way I can do this is to be me. So um, uh, they are looking for the face up the, up, you know, up the chairs, you know, to Deborah and Peter. They are looking for a bit of a spat, if you want to call it that way. But I would only do it in what, as far as I was comfortable sometimes the producers would be saying more dragon like more dragon like <laughs> you know because we were all good pals off the set at the end of the day but you've got to show some competitiveness we're not there to be pussycats we're there to be lions and, and that's part of making the program otherwise people wouldn't watch it wouldn't so having decided to be authentic um 
I was comfortable with that because I'd always given lots of advice to business people, you know, similar to what we're doing now in the pub or at home or whatever. I just decided, look, you know, when I talk to these entrepreneurs coming through the lift doors, I talk to them as if they're in my office or in the in the pub or something like that. Um, someone said, how do you deal with the cameras? And I said, I never really noticed them. They're, they're sort of up the side and coming in through a, you know, a stage wall or something. And I just, I just don't think about them. I just want to give that, on, that entrepreneur all the time they deserve and the attention they deserve. So I was just me with them. And, and then that allowed me when I was bidding for something and if I was outbid, particularly by somebody like Peter, whose brand supersedes him, you know, if they didn't go for me and they weren't for him, I was quite sanguine about that in thinking that's okay uh, because if you don't want me, then fine, you've chosen to have him. By the way, you'll never see much of him, but you would have seen a lot of me. But, you know, that was for them to find out. That's their choice, yeah, that's their choice. <laughs> and of the ones that you chose to back, um, mm. what, what was the, if you, if you think of the one that you, that really kind of sticks with you and that you're really excited about, or a couple of them, what was the spark within it that made you go for it? Well, the, the things I always looked for were um, a previous chairman I had of mine who was invested across various businesses. I said to him one day in the car, "What?" and this was before Dragon's Den even came across my horizon. I said to him, what do you look for when you invest in businesses, Chris? And he said, I look for four things, Jenny. I look for a, a management team that I think I can work with and resonate with. I look for a product that I know and understand and can get behind passionately. I look to get in at the right price. And crucially, I looked to see when I can get out. I'm not their banker for the next 10 years, yeah? Um, and that fourth one is quite interesting when you're talking to entrepreneurs because there isn't an exit plan. It's a lifestyle business. That's not something I'm going to get an investment return on. So first and foremost, it's about the people. When they walk through the door, do I think I like you? I know it's, um, you know, you say don't judge a book by a, by a cover, but we're human beings and we do. As soon as someone walks through the door, you do. Um, but then you reserve that a little and watch and listen and perhaps ch change that a little bit. So I think first and foremost, um, uh, uh, I would just share with the audience that um, I shook hands on 12 deals over two series in the den. They don't all go to fruition. People think they do, but it's a heads of terms, effectively. There's due diligence. Um, sometimes the entrepreneurs change their mind on the other side or maybe they only came for the advert anyway. Um, but I guess the one that I've, I, I shook hands on completed uh, on and I'm still with today and it's uh, uh, you know it's doing really really well is Didsbury Gin. Um, uh, I love those guys They're both from Manchester, I from Manchester. Um, I like the fact there's two of them we've definitely got yin and yang there um, and uh, and of course it's a product that I, I love. I'm a bit of a gin, a gin passionist so I can really get behind that business and, and behind those boys we, we work very well together. So as a northerner, I absolutely love that story. I'm ashamed to say that I don't know whether it's actually available in Singapore, but I bet you somebody in the audience does. I will um, go away and, uh, <laughs> and make that happen for you. <laughs> be very happy to serve it here. Um, uh, can I take you to another bit of um, what you have done, which is you've, you've spent, as you, as, as you say, you've spent a lot of time, be it uh, kind of informally one-off offering of advice in the pub of somebody who comes up to you, but also um, putting your back into um, uh, Prince's Trust and support yes. for young people and young entrepreneurs uh, through that. Um, I'm also thinking that in this period, we're going through a really extraordinary period in terms of economics and kind of human development with a global pandemic, uh, partly as the background. You've got loads of contact with young entrepreneurs who will be demonstrating kind of different ways of thinking, probably different tastes, different ambitions, potentially. What are some of the trends that you're observing in terms of um, our business operating environment or the types of entrepreneurs you're seeing through and do you see from coming through the pandemic do you see some uh, of course there are massive downsides including loss of life uh, and economic disruption but do you see um, sort of longer term disbenefits and long-term benefits from the period we're going through now? 
Okay, that was a lot to cover in there. Sorry, yeah. Um, I am really supportive of young people. Uh, I always have been really um, helping young people to be better than they even think they can be, or uh, or, or getting young people who perhaps had a more um, disadvantaged life to get themselves out of that and become and achieve. So I've always been passionate about that. It made me think about it mostly when I won the Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2014, um, and then as a result of that platform, Platform was asked by a lot of charities to get involved um, across a whole spectrum of things and I thought I can't get involved in everything and it comes back to getting involved in what you're passionate about and I thought what am I passionate about I'm passionate about business and I'm passionate about young people and that made me get involved at the time with um, young enterprise in schools um, and then uh, before Princess Trust um, I was involved in a smaller charity called Tomorrow's People for disadvantaged young people so I felt I wanted to help young people who were already very confident in going places to get even further. But I also wanted to help the other end of the disadvantaged. So now today I'm with the Princess Trust and I'm a um, vice president of the Entrepreneurs uh, Fellowship Programme, which is um, getting successful entrepreneurs just to reach into their pockets and support the younger entrepreneurs. So what am I seeing in those entrepreneurs, those young entrepreneurs? Um, uh, I think... I suppose some of it is the, is the same in uh, nervous. They're nervous about where the, where how the current land lies. But I'm saying to them, grasp these opportunities because through challenge comes opportunity. So through my challenges in 2006, then 2008 came to opportunities. I would never have had the opportunity to buy the business in 2008, but for the global financial crisis, never. Um, and then through this last year, my eldest son, who's an entrepreneur and has three restaurants in London, you know, I saw him during lockdown one with his head in his hands in the first week. And then as the um, initiative started to come, furlough and so on, he raised his head um, and, you know, he's pretty resilient like his mother. And a year on, if he was sitting here speaking, he'd say, do you know what this challenge has done for me, for my opportunities? He's, um, he said, first, he said, landlords have started being more sensible about rents. Um, secondly, I can hire quality people now in my business who turn up for a shift. Thirdly, I was able to get a pot of cheap money from the bank, which I've used now to acquire the lease of the premises next door for a third of the price that they were wanting to sell it to me two years ago. And I'm raring to go. So, you know, you, you've got to sort of pick yourself up and think, where are the opportunities in this gap now? Um, and I think entrepreneurship um, really came alive in 2008 in the UK after the global financial recession, gave birth to a lot of budding entrepreneurs. Um, I do say to young people, you can't all be the millionaire at 30 on a beach. You can't all be that. And maybe it's better if some of you go to work first in a small enterprise and learn how to become an entrepreneur. But I think um, to the point of your agenda, it is about to you know, choose to challenge and grabbing those opportunities. And I do think in this day and age, there is much more diversity um, across those young entrepreneurs in terms of, you know, the people they work with and, and then how they work, you know, like we're talking today. Mm -hmm. um, I wish 20 years ago, as I was running in and out of the city every day and commuting three hours each way with two children under 10, that I had this flexibility that we have here today. But the flexibility wasn't there. And in fact, it was frowned upon. If I wanted to work at home one day a week, it was really tough. So I think this has brought enormous change that, um, you know, we can grasp positively with both hands. Yeah, and I think um, I think there's uh, something for me, I'm seeing more um, men also appreciating having that additional flexibility and learning what it can bring in terms of work-life integration, yes. uh, time for other responsibilities. And I think that will be, I predict that that will be a big uh, kind of game changer. Can I take you back then to... Um, the start of your career. So you're starting off um, at 16, uh, you're working from ground level, and then you see where you got to in a relatively quick amount of time. Uh, by the time you're in your early 40s, you're doing really major head office jobs uh, before you go off to Hanko. When you look back, um, uh, uh, what, what were the things or, um, about you or what were the moments that indicated, predicted, why you? What were the things that fed into you having that amazing career in quite a short amount of time? 
Um, it didn't feel like a short amount of time at the time. And, uh, and as I said, I didn't really have massive ambitions in the beginning. I didn't because I didn't see them. I was a 16 year old working in a local branch in Manchester. And I thought, well, maybe I'll work in a bigger branch, you know, in central Manchester. And maybe I'll become an area manager. Maybe I'll become a regional manager. I was thinking as I went sort of 16 to mid 20s. But I always said there was there were some things, some defining moments when I was mid twenties and mid thirties, then mid forties, that made me sit up and think, "There's more out there, and I can achieve more, and I can have more." Um, and and so you know, really quickly in my mid twenties, I was um, in a uh, in a branch in Devon by then. My husband was in the air force, so we were moving around because of his career. Um, but I had a letter from HR one day that said, "Dear Jenny, we've assessed your future career prospects as a grade B," and I thought. I haven't spoken to anybody about this. What does B mean? And I'm sure there's an A before a B. So where is that? So it just makes you sit up and question. And of course, I asked the person opposite me, uh, a young man who was doing the same job as me for a more junior manager, what he had. And he had an A. And, it, and it, you just go, you wake up and smell the coffee. And so I asked and I challenged. And eventually, 18 months later, I was given a grade A. And, it, and it was, that was all really important around it, supporting me going off work and having children coming back for my next job. You know, it was really crucial. Well, there was an amount of bias in that, I realised, um, mm. because there was a perception I was going to go off and have children. So I, I had to fall into the B grade. Um, so it made me sit up and smell the coffee and learn how to challenge, but in the right way um, to keep people on side with me. Um, and then I think, you know, when I was uh, 30, 35, um, I was I was by that time leading up to 35 I'd started to read about people who inspired me and I still do I still have books all around me of people's life stories and I'll find things in there that really inspire me and um, I was reading the internal staff magazine one day and I read this profile of a lady who was 10 years older than me in a senior position in London in the bank with two children the same age as me so she sort of started 10 years later and I was thinking gosh, that's a senior position with young children. I didn't know senior positions that senior existed. And there's a lady in it with two young children. So I took the initiative to write to her and uh, tell her how her story inspired her, that inspired me. And that led to her writing back to me, meeting me, uh, offering me a role in London. And that took my career on the next path um, through that support that she gave me to come into London because I'd read the paper, been inspired and wrote to her. So sometimes you need those little kickstarts up, up further up the ladder. Yeah, and uh, what's common between those two stories is uh, you taking the initiative, isn't it? And just going, mm -hmm. right, I'm going I'm to go for it. Yes. Um, and thinking that the benefits are better than any any downsides of having... Nothing that's happened in my life has happened because um, because it just happened. Apart from, you know, some, you know, global financial... I've always grasped those opportunities. You know, I grasped the opportunity to get my grade A, to go into London, to um, uh, go to Hanko, to buy the business, to sell the business, to go on Dragon's Den. They didn't come to me. I saw it in the newspaper that, that somebody was leaving. And, you know, we phoned up the BBC and said, you know, give me a screening test. So none of what I've achieved has happened because I waited for it to happen. Oh, that's, I find that really, really inspiring. Um, I'm going to invite the audience, please do pop some questions in the chat. And if not, I'm going to steam through with all the things I want to know from Jenny. So please okay. let us have some Don't questions. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Exactly. Grasp the opportunity. Um, you mentioned there uh, a senior female who got back to you on the back of your speculative kind of youth mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, really opened a door for you. Um, one of the things that I think in my career, if I think back to what it felt like when I started working in the Foreign Office in 1993, and I compare it to now, um, the sort of uh, the role of females for supporting and bringing each other on feels really different now to what it felt then. It's one of the biggest joys of my career, actually. I only wish it went back into the schoolyard. Oh, yes. Each other as well, um, uh, but in terms of uh, professionals supporting each other, um, I think that is uh, really important. What are the kind of things that you might like to say or suggest to females uh, in the audience who are either in a position where they can put out a hand and help somebody, or are considering looking for some kind of uh, support uh, from within this amazing bank of female solidarity and brilliance? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd always say to those looking for support, surround yourself by the right people, male and female, who can support you and not pull you down and support you on your journey. Um, and, and to others, I'd say to, to women, you know, support women, women supporting women. I know it's easily said, but I found 20 years ago that, and even now to a degree, but we need to make more change, that women are either so supportive of each, of each other, it's almost like a sisterhood um, that is very, very strong, or there's another half that actually are, are, are not supportive and, 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 and quite, um, you know, uh, detrimental to you. And, you know, my, my neighbour down the road here, um, she's 40 years of age, seen a job in logistics, um, uh, running her job from home whilst, school, uh, whilst um, homeschooling her five-year-old. And she said, you know, the, I, I, when I run up to the school gate with him, knowing that I've got to get on an audio at 9.30, I feel the glare of the mummy standing around chatting that, oh, there's that career girl who just drops and goes, you know? And we are really good, aren't we, sometimes at making other women feel quite small or more inadequate, you know? Um, as I was on one of these sessions yesterday, I had to get used to the fact that I know to come home from school saying fancy dress tomorrow, please. And I'm going, what? <laughs> fancy dress? That's not on my agenda. And the child will go dressed in a curtain and a, and a cardboard crown. But you feel so inadequate doing that, you know? So one, the schools have got to get better at that, giving you more notice. You know, you'd be furious if I asked you to come on an, an audio nine o'clock tomorrow morning, you know, with no brief. It's not on, is it? So the schools need to get better at that, at supporting uh, mothers. And we need to be more supportive in fact, some people choose to be stay-at-home mums. There is nothing wrong with that at all, but don't make the career mums feel guilty. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's... Um, I was laughing so much when you were talking about that. I have so many experiences of having to make a having to make a habitat for a panda at eight exactly. o'clock one night, and then yeah. finding when you've done the habitat for the panda, the next one goes. But I need to be a superhero, and you're going, yeah. "Oh my goodness!" and getting yeah. out your so exactly. Um, and I often find for myself as a as a um, working mother that I will reproach myself for lots of things in my yes. work, but I reproach myself even harder if my work has got in the way of something going okay for my kids. We are very hard on ourselves. I always felt I could never do Christmas properly for the children because there just wasn't enough time to do it in the way that some um, families just uh, indulge themselves over Christmas. There wasn't enough time and I didn't have the energy for it. So now I do it, but we, we, we beat ourselves up too much, I think. Yeah, Sometimes I the, the kids just want, as I said, you know, the kids just want you uh, and they want you to be super cool and have lots of fun. It doesn't need to have all the bells and whistles as well. Completely agree with that. I've got a couple of questions in from the audience. One is about whether now um, mm -hmm. you are doing huge amount of mentoring. Um, what about you? Uh, you talked about your support network and the fact that you need people around you when you're embarking upon something. What about what about now? Do you have a mentor that you turn to for advice that you've been in touch for a while or a new one that's come on recently? Yeah, um, you know, mentoring became a bit of a buzzword in the 80s, didn't it? You had all had yeah. to go and find yourself a mentor and you'd look around and think, oh, who's I? You know, and I had uh, several failures of mentorship because there weren't people that I really um, had a relationship with, would share, uh, you know, and confide in them, appreciated their views. So it's quite hard to just label someone on a mentor sometimes these relationships just grow over time and so I have got mentors around me I might not call them a mentor but you know you talk to your family I talk to people my senior team who I used to work with we're all out of the business now and we meet up you know once a quarter and we share stories between each other and I can always certainly speak to one or two of them privately um, uh, so there's people in my professional life that I think, oh, I'll pick the phone up to him or her and just chew this one over with them. But it's always about having sounding boards more than anything. You, I don't think you feel you, you need to have a life coach there, um, but certainly you need to have go-to people. Who can I go and ask and, and have a confidential word about this and appreciate their advice? You know, you, you don't need to keep it all, all in here. You should talk mm -hmm. things through with people. And that you genuinely feel have your best interests um, at heart. Yes. Um, uh, another question that's come in is about, you mentioned you having these books about inspiring people. Um, yes. Uh, somebody has asked a question about, if you're seeking to drive forward your career, are there any particularly great books or podcasts 
that you might recommend, I don't know if you're a podcaster, um, that would be interesting to somebody thinking at a more junior stage of their career how to uh, drive it forward? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I really love that because, you know, she had to sit sit there in the wings, if you like, behind uh, Barack. But she, we all know she's very much her own woman. And I think some of us would have liked to have seen her run for presidency as well. So <laughs> um, I, I loved that book. Um, I, not so much the podcast thing. I do like to sit there with my book and come away from screens and devices at times, but I, I would just say, read any story that gives you uh, any, I mean, I, I read Nigel Farage's story, not that he's necessarily my cup of tea, sometimes most of the time, or his politics, but I, it really enthralled me as to what made him so passionate about the journey that he'd been on for the last 30 years. So I wanted to read that. And um, so it, I, I would say I don't read books necessarily for the hints and tips on how people have managed things, because um, I think you manage things in your own way, but I just do it to get the um, inspiration from, well, I can do that as well. You know, uh, when you, whenever you think your world is collapsing around you, it's not really, you know, you might uh, break a few plates, but you pick yourself up and you just, as I always say, we always have too much to do, especially us ladies, don't we? Um, and we're good, we're good list makers as well. But then you feel like you've got to do the whole list in one day and you don't. Um, I always look at it and say, what have I got to do today? But if I don't do it, I've missed a deadline or I've let someone down. And you'll find it's probably it's two or three things and the rest will wait till tomorrow and should do. We, yeah. we try to spin the plates too fast sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a friend who rather helpfully puts two things on her list every day that she's already completed <laughs> just to help her with a bit of momentum uh, at the uh, beginning of the day. Um, I also find that when you're reading, when you're looking or when you're hearing other people's stories, it depends where you are on your own journey, uh, doesn't it? Uh, different things will dock into you and be meaningful to you at a different yeah. time. So you could even yeah. read the same book and get two different things out of it, depending yeah, on where exact, you are. Exactly. Yeah. Where you are uh, mentally. Um, there's a there's a question about um, what is the point? What is the point at which you would even think of retiring? You've got so much on. You've done so much. You know, is there a is there a point at which you would retire or look to kind of slow down or minimise what you're doing? <laughs> or is it just uh, all too exciting? In fact, two no, oh, I always laugh as people have asked me that over the last five years. I said, well, what does retirement mean? If yeah. retirement means, you know, I read the newspaper over a cup of coffee at the table and then I go out and snip the roses and then I walk around the, the woods with my, with my dogs. Well, I'm doing a fair bit of that anyway. I, I can never see myself in full retirement. Um, I like to keep busy. And I think we're that sort of generation. So, but I want to do things on my own terms now. So um, I've actually appreciated this enforced stay at home, if I'm honest, uh, because it means people are not, ask, you, know, forced, you know, forcing the agenda for me to go here, there and everywhere. But, but my, my dogs are very important to me. I've got three flat-coated retrievers who I show and breed and judge and I had the litter last May which for the first time in my life I haven't been juggling it with going out of the door I was able to put eight weeks into just totally absorbing myself in those puppies which was wonderful um, and and now with uh, you know all the digital stuff we do um, I say to my PA look I, I, I like to do my audios at, at nine and ten in the morning and then I like the day to be open but I'll come back and do audios at three four five so that I can then go and walk the dogs, go into town, whatever. So I think, you know, I'm just, I, I just really, really want that um, balance in my life um, so that I can choose when to do my work and, and when to, you know, just walk away from that and go and have time with the family and the dogs. But not, not retirement in the truest sense of the word, I, I don't see it. <laughs> Um, uh, a lot of what you said there, I think, rings true to me. I hope my family are preparing for me to have a similar approach to not retiring. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so Kate has asked a question uh, about um, how, how you have managed to think through when you go for things that you're passionate about, as she describes it, the opportunities that you're super passionate about and sensible career decisions. Have yeah. you ever found those have been in massive kind of tension uh, you spoke about some of people's reactions to you going off and buying hanko uh, yourself but have there been any of the times where you've been faced with oh this is the sensible thing to do or appears to be and but this is what i really care about and how have you thought through those choices 
Yeah, I mean, good question. I always say that the most challenging part of my career was um, when I had two children under 10 and I had this new job in London. Um, and we had to find a place where we could live, where my husband could commute to his work and I could commute to London. And we ended up in Peterborough, which is 90 miles from London, um, 45 minutes on the train, a bit of tube, but still an hour and a half each way. And I've got two children under 10 and no grandparents around us because we moved around the country. Um, and so that I had to have a support structure in place, childcare nurseries that sort of thing wasn't earning enough to have a, a nanny that walked in at 7 30 every morning couldn't do that either and you know and I used to do um presentations to the ladies in the bank then and you know one day one lady asked me from the floor what if your child fall, falls ill today you're 90 miles away you know and again it's one of those questions where you go <gasps> you know um uh but you those are the things you just have to know that you can deal with that you either your friend or the child um, minder will get there but you are 90 miles away from your children and some people would say really um but you know I was only going to have this chance once in a lifetime and again um I was saying on a, a session yesterday when, when I had my second child I chose to just take six weeks off work and then go back to uh, work and again some ladies would go oh shock horror but I knew I was a better person for being at work and giving my child all the time when I came out of work. And of course, back in those days, when you left work at 5.30, you really did leave work because you didn't have an iPhone in your hand yeah, and you right. didn't have connectivity at home. So when you, you left work, uh, you left it till the next morning. So you had that quality time with your children. So they were probably the hardest times when you challenge yourself as much as others perhaps challenge you. Um, but you've just got to do what you know is right for you and um, providing everybody's happy and healthy, then, you, you know, you crack on. I said to my daughter the other day, who had uh, shared with me a comment that another mother, another child had made about her mother having stopped work so that she could raise her kids properly. And mm. I said, oh, that's a good idea. I'll focus all of my energies into making sure you're the, exactly the wonderful human being. And she went, oh, no, mommy, please don't work. <laughs> don't work yeah she was fine with it yeah. um uh another question from the audience i think we've got time probably for two questions i think uh helen if you're keeping us to time uh uh thank you so much for being so sharing with us jenny and it's flowing so um well um mm. what is the one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self if you could teleport back to have <laughs> a chat to young jenny what would you tell her i, I get this question quite regularly actually and um and I, first of all, I would say, uh, transport myself back, you know, believe in, in, in that you can achieve even more than you think you can achieve. So aim for the moon and you'll land in the stars. I mean, I didn't even know where the moon was when I was 20 or 25. I gradually took those steps. Having said that, you know, I think I've done pretty well. So if I say that to myself, I think, well, what else would I have wanted to achieve? I'm pretty cool with where I am. Um, I think I would just um, just have more self-belief really um and and uh, and and challenge more where things don't feel equitable you know when i was 16 i spent two years counting cash and um and reading uh, and, and um, printing checkbooks and doing very manual uh, tasks. Whereas the boys within six months went from that manual task onto the counter into the net and got upgraded. And we were told that was because the women were more dexterous than the boys. Well, Halle, you know, thanks for that. I'm more dexterous. So I get, <laughs> get held down in the junior position, but at 16, you just accept that. I don't think you'd accept those things these days. So we have to keep challenging, but in, in the right way and just, just be you, you know, don't, don't, we don't have to wear shoulder pads anymore. You can just be, but just be you. You've said, um, you said a couple of times challenge, but in the right way. And the last mm. time you said that, you said, so that people will go with you or something. You said something about yes. keeping people on side. Yeah. Um, have you got any tips on that? I think that's, I think that's a really, that's something often that when I'm talking, when I'm mentoring women or when I'm thinking about things myself, you know, I'm going to go for that. That looks a bit weird to me. It doesn't feel right in my guts. Yeah. But how am I going to challenge in the correct way? What I try to be very um, um, conscientious that um, I do think um, a women's women's behaviour can be exactly the same as a man's behaviour, but can be perceived as aggressive, whereas he's assertive. And I'm very conscientious of that um, 
you know, unconscious bias sometimes. So it's, I think we have really good emotional intelligence or say use it. And just the way that you do that come over as, you know, f firm, um, but assertive and, you know, the lady's not for moving type thing. But you don't need to be aggressive. You don't need to turn people against you. I think women can get away with that a lot less than the men who are seen as being a bit macho. I don't think a macho woman really works in our world. So I think it's important you sort of show that soft aside, but uh, you know, wrapped in a wrapped in steel, probably. The core of steel, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, I always pursued my own battles, if you want to put it that way. But by getting people on my side, I never used a complaint process or a union process or anything like that. I was very much I'll pursue my own battles. I don't need to do a crusade with others. Others doing it for me. Mm. I read a piece of advice inside my own organisation where somebody had said never sulk either. So from which I took, from which I took, you know, think about your next move. Yes. Uh, really do think about your next move and keep a positive demeanour towards the organisation. Yeah, and that would go to public face and private face. You know, yeah. don't bring your baggage to work, male or female. You know, we're there to look after you, but we, we don't want all that baggage coming to work. You've got a job to do. So game face on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my final question uh, has come from the audience and it's about um, uh, the person who, who asked this is an aspiring entrepreneur themselves uh, who is pursuing a passion project and is thinking through how to manage risks uh, but also failures and challenges which will inevitably happen in these passion projects and if you're being brave enough to be an entrepreneur. Um, any tips on managing those challenges and failures? Uh, yes, just to accept that failures are, are learning processes, you know, um, they, they will happen and you will be bigger and stronger for it. Um, when I bought the business in 2010, I had to raise some private money. And um, a month after we'd done the um, uh, management buyout and bearing in mind, you know, I'd gone from being paid on the 18th of every month to then having to find a quarter of a million pounds on the 18th of every month to pay everybody, including myself. You know, it was a massive leap to take. Um, and my private shareholders own 65% of the business. Uh, and at the first board meeting, my private shareholders turned on me and said, actually, we don't want to um, we don't want to do that business plan that we signed up to. We just want to sell the business on and sell you with it. Um, so that was the biggest gulp. <laughs> uh, yes, you just did. Yeah, and I thought uh, I thought you and I won't say the word on here. Um, uh, and I thought but you, you're not going to beat me on this. And I just uh, worked very carefully in the right way, as I say, for the, on the next two years with them to find a way out for them. But there was a compromise and was fair to me as well. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a big awakening call. Um, uh, and uh, but I had to just very carefully for the next two years work out how to raise money to get them out and get the right yeah. set of shareholders around the table and get control of my own business. Um, uh, one final question for me. Uh, so you've worked in big organisations um, and then you've been in a much more entrepreneurial environment. Um, I think the, the future of the UK and the success of the UK is definitely around the courage of our businesses, the innovation within our businesses. I feel really kind of confident about what we've got to offer in the world and about our ability to export and to find partnerships internationally. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this job, I guess. Mm, yeah. um, but if you were going to take something that exists within an entrepreneurial environment that you think could improve um, uh, kind of bigger organisations to help bring them closer to that entrepreneurial spirit and that you think it's possible to do, what would you pick? Oh, you mean something or a way of working or something? Either, either, yeah. You know, I, I, I used to see over the last 20 years that um, big businesses occasionally used to bring a, um, a big hitting entrepreneur into the business, into the corporate world and say, you know, head up our innovation team or help us to become entrepreneurial. And inv invariably, those people would last one year and be gone because there was no, no chance you could turn this juggernaut into uh, an entrepreneurial spirit. So I think... Um, the, the only way to do that is to almost have an entrepreneurial arm of the business that is allowed that freedom to innovate and develop whilst a bit like, I suppose, the cash machine uh, business was before mm. I bought it in that uh, it was never integrated to the bank. 
and it had the mothership there and we could pull down everything we need from it, needed from it, including financial support, but we could still get on and operate in our entrepreneurial world. I do think, you know, um, what's happened over you know, my generation has been lots and lots of consolidation and it stymies the entrepreneurial spirit in these subsidiaries. You see them just lose their way. Um, you know, I might even say that about my business that I sold in 2016, you know, did it fit and what's happened to it now? Um, so, you know, I would think to get the best of the best, you've got to have probably still a degree of separation between corporate and entrepreneurship, uh, maybe with a, you know, a, an umbilical cord or corridor or something, but not if you put the whole corporateness over the entrepreneur, it, it will just suffocate it. So, yeah. and that's how I felt we're buying the business you are now you're suffocating the business rbs let it go yeah uh, that's really interesting and you can see that uh, i can see that say in the fintech area that lots of the big mm. organizations are actually mm. just having relationships with entrepreneurial mm. and innovative smaller companies to do their mm. creation with them yes uh, and and not necessarily going and kind of gobbling them up and bringing them in yeah uh, it'll but, be interesting where the challenger banks go like monzo and starling yeah. and so on as they try to get bigger you know, they need the scale of the, you know, the major banks, but they want to remain innovative as well. And that's the challenge. Yeah. Uh, Jenny, you've been a complete delight to talk to. I have found you really generous uh, and inspiring. Um, I'm sure the people um, online have picked up lots of really interesting insights for their own uh, lives. I'm going to hand back now to David, but again, a massive thank you for the approach you, that you've taken to this interview. Okay, thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much, Cara. And thank you so much, Jenny, for your time today. What an absolutely amazing session and way to end our International Women's Day series. Absolutely amazing. Um, Jenny, I hope we can welcome you to Singapore in the not too distant future, although <laughs> it does seem quite normal seeing you on screen in front of a chair being recorded, uh, so not, nothing too <laughs> different there, but thank you so much for your sharing. What an incredibly inspiring journey, and I certainly took a, a you know away an, a number of your comments on people and self-belief and, and just be you. Um, I think that really resonated with me, so thank you so, so much for your time today. Very welcome, David. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britcham.org.sg.